Welcome to Volume 6 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 11 It's considerably more than a step from Brinkley Court to Hearn Bay, the one being in the middle of Worcestershire, and the other on the coast of Kent, and even in the best of conditions you don't expect to do the trip in a flash. On the present occasion, held up by the Arab steeds getting taken with a fit of the vapours, and having to be towed to a garage for medical treatment, I didn't fetch up at the journey's end till well past midnight, and when I rolled round to Jesus' address on the morrow, I was informed he'd gone out early, and they didn't know when he'd be back. Leaving word for him to ring me at the drones, I returned to the metropolis, and was having the pre-dinner keg of nails in the smoking room when his call came through. Mr. Worcester, good evening, sir. This is Jeeves. And not a moment too soon, I said, speaking with the emotion of a lost lamb, which, after a long separation from the parent sheep, finally manages to spot it across the meadow. Where have you been all this time? I had an appointment to lunch with a friend at Folkestone, sir, and while there was persuaded to extend my visit in order to judge a seaside bathing bells contest. No, really? You do live, don't you? Yes, sir. How'd it go off? Quite satisfactorily, sir, thank you. Who won? A Miss Marlene Higgins of Brixton, sir, with Miss Lena Brown of Tulse Hill and Miss Marilyn Bunting of Penge, honourably mentioned. All most attractive young ladies, sir. Shapely? Extremely so. Let me tell you, Jeeves, and you can paste this in your hat. Shapeliness isn't everything in the world. In fact, it sometimes seems to me that the more curved and lissome the members of the opposite sex the more likely they are to set Hell's Foundations quivering. I'm sorely beset, Jeeves. Do you recall telling me once about someone who told somebody he could tell him something which he would make him think a bit? Knitted socks and porcupines entered into it, if I remember. I think you may be referring to the ghost of the father of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, sir. Addressing his son, he said, I could a tale unfold whose lightest words would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars, start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine. That's right! Locks, of course, not socks. Odd that he should have said porpentine when he meant porcupine. Slip of the tongue, no doubt as so often happens with ghosts. Well, he had nothing on me, Jeeves. It's a tale of that precise nature I'm about to unfold. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Then hold on to your hat and don't miss a word. When I had finished unfolding, he said, I can readily appreciate your concern, sir. The situation, as you say, is one fraught with anxiety. Which is pitching it strong for Jeeves. He has a rule coming through with a mere... Most disturbing, sir. I will come to Brinkley Court immediately, sir. Will you really? I hate to interrupt your holiday. Not at all, sir. You could resume it later. Certainly, sir, if that is convenient to you. But now... Precisely, sir. Now, if I may borrow a familiar phrase. Is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party? The very words I was about to employ, sir. I will call at the apartment as early an hour tomorrow as is possible. And we'll drive down together, right, I said, and went off to my simple but wholesome dinner. It was with 
Well, not quite an uplifted heart. Call it a heart lifted about halfway. I started out for Brinkley on the following afternoon. The thought of Jeeves at my side, his fish-fed brain at my disposal, caused a spot of silver lining to gleam through the storm clouds. But only a spot, for I was asking myself if even Jeeves might not fail to find a solution to the problem that had raised its ugly head. Admittedly expert though he was at joining sundered hearts, he had rarely been up against a rift within the loot so complete as that within the loot of Roberta Wickham and Reginald Herring. And as I remember hearing him say once, "'Tis not in mortals to command success. And at the thought of what would ensue were he to fail on this assignment, I quivered like something in aspic. I could not forget that Bobby, while handing Kipper his hat, had expressed in set terms her intention of lugging me to the altar rails and signalling to the clergyman to do his stuff. So as I drove along, the heart, as I have indicated, was uplifted only to a medium extent. When we were out of London traffic and it was possible to converse without bumping into buses and pedestrians, I threw the meeting open for debate. You've not forgotten our telephone conversation of yesterday, Jeeves. No, sir. You have the salient points docked in your mind. Yes, sir. Have you been brooding on them? Yes, sir. You got a bite of any sort? Not yet, sir. No, I hardly expected you would. These things do take time. Yes, sir. The core of the matter is, I said, twiddling the wheel to avoid a passing hen, that in Roberta Wickham we are dealing with a girl of high and haughty spirit. Yes, sir. And girls of high and haughty spirit need kidding along. This cannot be done by calling them carrot-top Jezebels. No, sir. I know if anyone called me a carrot-top Jezebel, Umbridge is the first thing I'd take. Who was Jezebel, by the way? The name seems familiar, but I can't place her. A character in the Old Testament, sir. A queen of Israel. Ah, of course, yes. Be forgetting my own name next. Eaten by dogs, wasn't she? Yes, sir. Can't have been pleasant for her. No, sir. Still, that's the way the ball rolls. Talking being eaten by dogs. There's a dachshund at Brinkley who, when you first meet him, will give you the impression that he plans to convert you into a light snack between his regular meals. Pay no attention. It's all eyewash. His belligerent attitude is simply... Sound and fury signifying nothing, sir. That's it. Pure swank. A few civil words and he'll be grappling you... Uh, what's the expression I've heard you use? Grappling me to his soul with hoops of steel, sir. In the first two minutes, he wouldn't hurt a fly, but he has to put up a front because his name's Poppet. One can readily appreciate that when a dog hears himself addressed day in, day out as Poppet, he feels he must throw his weight about. His self-respect demands it. Precisely, sir. You're like Poppet, nice dog. Wears his ears inside out. Why do dachshunds wear their ears inside out anyway? I couldn't say, sir. Nor me, I've often wondered. But this won't do, Jeeves. Here we are, yakking about Jezebels and dachshunds, when we ought to be concentrating our minds on... I broke off abruptly. My eye had been caught by a wayside inn. Well, not so much by the wayside inn as by what was standing outside it. To wit, a scarlet roadster, which I recognized instantly as the property of Bobby Wickham. One saw what had happened. Driving back to Brinkley, after a couple of nights with Mother, she had found the going a bit warm, and had stopped off at this hostelry for a quick one. And a very sensible thing to do, too. 
Nothing picks one up more than a spot of sluicing on a hot summer afternoon. I applied the brakes. Mind waiting here a minute, Jeeves? Certainly, sir. You wish to speak to Miss Wickham. Ah, you spotted a car, too. Yes, sir. It is distinctly individual. Like its owner. I have a feeling that I may be able to accomplish something in the breach-healing way with honeyed words or two. Worth trying, don't you think? Unquestionably, sir. At a time like this one, we don't want to leave any avenue unturned. The interior of the Wayside Inn, the Fox and Goose, not that it matters, was like the interior of all Wayside Inns. Dark and cool and smelling of beer, cheese, coffee, pickles, and the sturdy English peasantry. Entering, you found yourself in a cosy nook with tankards on the walls and chairs and tables dotted hither and thither. On one of those chairs, at one of those tables, Bobby was seated with a glass and a bottle of ginger ale before her. Good Lord, Bertie, she said as I stepped up and woo-hooed her. Where did you spring from? I explained I was on my way back to Brinkley from London in my car. Well, be careful someone doesn't pinch it. I'll bet you haven't taken out the keys. Well, no, but Jeeves is in there, keeping watch and ward, as you might say. Oh, you've brought Jeeves along with you. I thought he was on his holiday. He very decently cancelled it. Very futile of him. Very. I told him I needed him at my side and he didn't hesitate. What do you need him at your side for? The moment had come for honeyed words. I lowered my voice to a confidential murmur, but on her inquiring if I had laryngitis, raised it again. I had an idea he might be able to do something. What about? You and Kipper, I said, and started to feel my way cautiously toward the Corin Centre. It would be necessary, I knew, to pick my words with C, for with girls of high and haughty spirit, you have to watch your step, especially if they have red hair, like Barbie. If they think you're talking out of turn, dudgeon ensues, and dudgeon might easily lead her to reach for the ginger ale bottle and bean me with it. I don't say that she would, but it was a possibility that had to be taken into account, so I sort of eased into the agenda. I must begin by saying that Kipper has given me a full eyewitnesses, well, earwitnesses, I suppose you'd say, report of that chat you and he had over the telephone, and no doubt you are saying to yourself that it would have been in better taste for him to have kept it under his hat. But you must remember that we were boys together, and a fellow naturally confides in a chap he was boys together with. Anyway, be that as it may, he poured out his soul to me, and he hadn't been pouring long before I was able to see that he was cut to the quick. His blood pressure was high, his eyes rolled in what they called a fine frenzy, and he was, Death, where is thy stinking like nobody's business? I saw her quiver and kept a wary eye on the ginger ale bottle, but even if she had raised it and brought it down on the Worcester Bean, I couldn't have been more stunned than I was by the words that left her lips. Oh, the poor lamb. I had ordered a gin and tonic. I now spilled a portion of this. Did you say the poor lamb? You bet I said the poor lamb. Though poor sap would perhaps be a better description. Just imagine him taking all that stuff I said seriously. He ought to have known I didn't mean it. I groped for the gist. You were just making conversation. Well blowing off steam. For heaven's sake, is the girl allowed to blow off steam occasionally? I never dreamed it would really upset him. Reggie always takes everything so literally. Then is the position that the laughing love god is once more working at the old stand? Oh, like a beaver. 
In fact, to coin a phrase, your sweethearts still? Of course. I may have meant what I said at the time, but only for about five minutes. I drew a deep breath and a moment later wished I hadn't, because I drew it while drinking the remains of my gin and tonic. Does Kipper know of this, I said, when I'd finished coughing. Not yet. I'm on my way to tell him. I raised a point at which I particularly desired assurance. Then what it boils down to is this. No wedding bells for me. I'm afraid not, Bertie. That's quite all right. Anything that suits you. I don't want to get chugged for bigamy. No, one sees that. And your selection for the day is Kipper. I don't blame you. The ideal mate. Just the way I look at it. He's terrific, isn't he? Colossal. I wouldn't marry anyone else if they came to me bringing apes, ivory, and peacocks. Tell me what he was like as a boy. Oh, much the same as the rest of us. Oh, nonsense. Except, of course, for rescuing people from burning buildings and saving blue-eyed children from getting squashed by runaway horses. Did he do that a lot? Almost daily. Was he the pride of the school? Oh, rather. Not that it was much of a school to be the pride of, from what he tells me. A sort of Dotheby's Hall, wasn't it? Conditions under Aubrey Upjohn were fairly tough. One's mind reverts particularly to the sausages on Sunday. Reggie was very funny about those. He said they were made not from contented pigs, but from pigs which had expired, regretted by all, of glanders, the bots, and tuberculosis. Yes, that would be quite a fair description of them, I suppose. Are you going? I said, for she had risen. Well, I can't wait another minute. I want to fling myself into Reggie's arms. If I don't see him soon, I shall just pass out. I know how you feel. The chap in the yeoman's wedding song thought along those same lines. And the way he put it was, Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, I hurry along. And one time I often used to render that number at village concerts. And there was a nasty betcher's brook to get over when you got to, for it is my wedding morning, because you had to stretch out the moor for about ten minutes, which tested the lung power severely. I remember the vicar once telling me. Here I was interrupted, as I'm so often interrupted when giving my views on the yeoman's wedding song, by her saying that she was dying to hear all about it, but would rather wait till she could get her to my autobiography. We went out together, and I saw her off, and returned to where Jeeves kept his vigil in the car, all smiles. I was all smiles, I mean, not Jeeves. The best he ever does is to let his mouth twitch slightly at one side, generally the left. I was in rare fettle, and the heart had touched a new high. I don't know anything that braces one up like finding you haven't got to get married after all. Sorry to keep you waiting, Jeeves, I said. Hope you weren't bored. Oh, no, sir, thank you. I was quite happy with my Spinoza. Eh? The copy of Spinoza's Ethics, which you kindly gave me some time ago. Ah, yes, I remember. Good stuff? Extremely, sir. I suppose it turns out in the end that the butler did it. Well, Jeeves, you'll be glad to hear that everything's under control. Indeed, sir. Yes, rift in loot mended and wedding bells liable to ring out at any moment. She's changed her mind. Varium et mutabile femini semper, sir. I shouldn't wonder. And now, I said, climbing in and taking the wheel, I'll unfold the tale of Wilbert and the cow creamer, and if that doesn't make your knotted locks do a bit of starting from their spheres, I for one shall be greatly surprised. Chapter 12 
Arriving at Brinkley in the quiet evenfall and putting the old machine away in the garage, I noticed that Aunt Dahlia's car was there and gathered from this that the aged relative was around and about once more. Nor was I an heir. I found her in her boudoir, getting outside a dish of tea and a crumpet. She greeted me with one of those piercing view halloos which she had picked up on the hunting field in the days when she had been an energetic chivier of the British fox. It sounded like a gas explosion and went through me from stem to stern. I've never hunted myself, but I understand that half the battle is being able to make noises like some jungle animal with dyspepsia. And I believe that Aunt Dahlia, in her prime, could lift fellow members of the Quorn and Pitchley out of their saddles with a single yip, though separated from them by two ploughed fields and a stretch of woodland. Hello, ugly, she said. Turned up again, have you? Just this moment, breasted the tape. Been to Hearn Bay, young Herring tells me. Yes, to fetch Jeeves. How's Bonzo? Spotty but cheerful. What did you want Jeeves for? Well, as it turns out, his presence isn't needed. But I only discovered that when I was halfway here. I was bringing him along to meditate. No, meditate isn't the word. To mediate, that's the word. Between Bobby Wickham and Kipper. Did you know they were betrothed? Yes, she told me. Did she tell you about shoving that thing in the time, saying she was engaged to me? I was the first in whom she confided. I got a good laugh out of it. More than Kipper did, because it hadn't occurred to the cloth-headed young nitwit to confide in him. When he read the announcement, he reeled and everything went black. It knocked his faith in woman for a loop, and after seething for a while, he sat down and wrote a letter in the Thomas Otway vein. In whose vein? You're not familiar with Thomas Otway? 17th century dramatist. Celebrated for making bitter cracks about the other sex. Read a play called The Orphan, which is full of them. So you do read something besides the comics? Well, actually, I haven't steeped myself in any great extent in Thomas's output. But Kipper, tell me about him. He held the view that women are a mess. And Kipper passed this information along to Bobby in this letter of which I speak. It was a snorter. And you never thought of explaining to him, I suppose. Course I did. But by the time she got the letter, why didn't the idiot tell her not to open it? That was his first move. I found a letter from you here, precious, she said. On no account open it, angel, he said. So, of course, she opened it. She pursed her lips, nodded the loaf, and ate a moody piece of crumpet. So that's why he's been going about looking like a dead fish. I suppose Roberta broke the engagement. In a speech lasting five minutes without a pause for breath. And you brought Jeeves along to mediate. That was the idea. But if things have gone as far as that... You doubt whether even Jeeves can heal the rift. I patted her on the top knot. Dry the starting tear, old ancestor. It's already healed. I met her at a pub on the way here, and she told me that almost immediately after she had flipped her lid in the manner described, she had a change of heart. She loves him still, with a passion that's more like boiling oil than anything. And when we parted, she was tooling off to tell him so. By this time, they must be like ham and eggs again. It's a great burden off my mind, because having parted brass rags with Kipper, she announced her intention of marrying me. A bit of luck for you, I should have thought. Far from it. Why, you were crazy about the girl once. But no longer. The fever has passed. The scales have fallen from my eyes, 
and were just good friends. The snag in this business of falling in love, aged relative, is that the parties of the first part so often get mixed up with the wrong parties of the second part, robbed of their cooler judgment by the parties of the second part's glamour. Put it like this, the male sex is divided into rabbits and non-rabbits, and the female sex into dashers and dormice. And the trouble is that the male rabbit has a way of getting attracted to the female dasher, who would be fine for the male non-rabbit, and realizing too late that he ought to have been concentrating on some mild, gentle dormouse, with whom he could settle down peacefully and nibble lettuce. The whole thing is, in short, a bit of a mix-up. Exactly. Take me in, Bobby. I yield to no one in my appreciation of her foliage. But I'm one of the rabbits, and always have been, while she is about as pronounced a dasher as ever dashed. What I like is the quiet life. Roberto Wickham wouldn't have recognized the quiet life if you brought it to her on a plate with watercress round it. She's all for not letting the sun go down without having started something calculated to stagger humanity. In a word, she needs the guiding hand, which is a thing I couldn't supply her with. Whereas from Kipper, she will get it in abundance, he being one of those tough non-rabbits for whom it is child's play to make the little woman draw the line somewhere. That is why the union of these twain has my support and approval, and why, when she told me all that in the pub, I felt like doing a buck and wing dance. Where is Kipper? I should like to shake his hand and pat him on the back. He went on a picnic with Wilbert and Phyllis. The significance of this did not escape me. Telling up stuff, eh? Running the job, is he? Wilbert is constantly under his eyes. And if ever a man needed to be constantly under an eye, it's the above kleptomaniac. The what? Haven't you been told? Wilbert's a pincher. How do you mean a pincher? He pinches things. Everything that isn't nailed down is grist to his mill. Don't be an ass, Bertie. I'm not being an ass. He's got Uncle Tom's cow creamer. I know. You know? Of course I know. Her, what's the word? Phlegm, is it? Something beginning with a P astounded me. I had expected to freeze her young or rather middle-aged blood and have her perm stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine. She hadn't moved a muscle. Beshrew me, I said. You take it pretty calmly. Well, what's there to get excited about? Tom sold him the damnable thing. What? Wilbert got in touch with him at Harrogate and put in his bid, and Tom phoned me to give it to him. Just shown how important the deal must be to Tom. I'd have thought he would have rather parted with his eye teeth. I drew a deep breath, this time fortunately unmixed with gin and tonic. I was profoundly stirred. You mean, I said, my voice quivering like that of a coloratura soprano, that I went through that soul-shattering experience all for nothing? Who's been shattering your soul, if any? Mark Cream, by popping in while I was searching Wilbur's room for the loathsome object. Naturally, I thought he'd swiped it and hidden it there. And she caught you? Not once, but twice. What did she say? She recommended I take treatment from Roddy Glossop, of whose skill in administering to the mentally afflicted she'd heard such good reports. One sees what gave her the idea. I was halfway under the dressing table at the moment, and no doubt she thought it odd. Bertie, how absolutely priceless! The adjective priceless seemed to me ill-chosen, and I said so, but my words were lost in the gale of mirth into which she now exploded. I've never heard anyone laugh so heartily, 
Not even Bobby on the occasion when the rake jumped up and hit me on the top of the head. I'd have given fifty quid to have been there, she said, when she was able to get the vocal cords working again. Halfway under the dressing table, were you? The second time, when we first foregathered, I was sitting on the floor with a chair around my neck. Like an Elizabethan ruff as worn by Thomas Botway. Otway, I said stiffly. As I've mentioned, I like to get things right. And I was about to tell her what I had hoped for from a blood relative was sympathy and condolence, rather than this crackling of thorns under a pot, as it is sometimes called, when the door opened and Bobby came in. The moment I cast an eye on her, it seemed to me that there was something strange about her aspect. Normally, this Beazle presents to the world the appearance of one who is feeling that if it isn't the best of all possible worlds, it's quite good enough to be going on with till a better one comes along. Verve, I mean, and animation, and all that sort of thing. But now there was listlessness about her. Not the listlessness of the cat Augustus, but more that of the female in the picture in the Louvre, of whom Jeeves, on the occasion when he lugged me there to take a deco at her, said that hers was the head upon which all the ends of the world are come. He drew my attention, I remember, to the weariness of the eyelids. I got just the same impression of weariness from Bobby's eyelids. Unparting her lips, which was set in a thin line as if she had just been taking a suck at a lemon, she said, I came to get that book of Mrs. Cream's I was reading, Mrs. Travers. Help yourself, child, said the ancestor. The more people in this joint reading her stuff, the better. It all goes to help the composition. So, you got here all right, Bobby, I said. Have you seen Kipper? I wouldn't say she snorted, but she certainly sniffed. Bertie, she said in a voice straight from the refrigerator, will you do me a favour? Of course, what? Don't mention that rat's name in my presence, she said, and pushed off, the eyelids still weary. She left me fogged and groping for the inner meaning, and I could see from Aunt Dahlia's goggling eyes that the basic idea hadn't gotten across with her either. Well, she said, what's all this? I thought you told me she loved young herring with a passion like boiling oil. Well, that was her story. The oil seems to have gone off the boil. Yes, sir, if that was the language of love, I'll eat my hat. Is that the blood relation, alluding I took it to the beastly straw contraption she wears when she does her gardening, concerning which I can only say that it is almost as foul as Uncle Tom's Sherlock Holmes deerstalker which has frightened more crows than any other Lyddon Worcestershire. They must have had another fight. It does look like that, I agreed. I don't understand how it could have happened, considering that she left me with the love light in her eyes, and can't have been back here more than half an hour. One asks oneself, what in so short a time can have changed a girl full of love and ginger ale into a girl who speaks of the adored object as that rat, and doesn't want to hear his name mentioned? These are deep waters. Shall I send for Jeeves? What on earth can Jeeves do? Well, now that you put it that way, I'm bound to admit that I don't know. It's just that one drops into the habit of sending for Jeeves whenever things have gone ugly, if that's the word I'm looking for. Scotch, isn't it? Ugly, I mean? It sounds Scotch to me. However, passing lightly over that, the thing to do when you want the lowdown is to go to the fountainhead and get it straight from the horse's mouth. Kipper can solve this mystery. I'll pop along and find him. I was, however, spared the trouble of popping, 
for at this moment he entered left centre. Oh, there you are, Bertie. He said. I heard you were back. I was looking for you. He had spoken in a low, husky sort of way, like a voice from the tomb, and I now saw that he was exhibiting all the earmarks of a man who has recently had a bomb explode in his vicinity. His shoulders sagged and his eyes were glassy. He looked, in short, like the fellow who hadn't started to take old Dr. Gordon's bile magnesia, and I snapped into it without preamble. This was no time to be tactful and pretend not to notice. What's all this strained relation stuff between you and Bobby, Kipper? I said, and when... He said, oh, nothing. I rapped on the table sharply and told him to cut out the coy stuff and come clean. Yes, Aunt Dahlia said. What's happened, young herring? I think for a moment he was about to draw himself up with hauteur and say he would prefer, if we didn't mind, not to discuss his private affairs. But when he was halfway up, he caught Aunt Dahlia's eye and returned to position one. Aunt Dahlia's eye, while not in the same class as that of my Aunt Agatha, who was known to devour her young and conduct human sacrifices at the time of the full moon, has lots of authority. He subsided into a chair and sat there looking filleted. Well, if you must know, he said, she's broken the engagement. This didn't get us any farther. We had assumed as much. You don't go calling people rats if love still lingers. But it was only an hour or so ago since I left her outside a hostelry called the Fox and Goose, and she had just been giving you rave notices. What came unstuck? What did you do to the girl? Oh, nothing. Come on! Well, it was this way. There was a pause here while he said he would give a hundred quid for a stiff whiskey and soda, but as this would have involved all the delay of ringing for pop glossop and having it fetched from the lowest bin, Aunt Dahlia would have none of it. In lieu of the desired refreshment, she offered him a cold crumpet, which he declined, and told him to get on with it. Where I went wrong, he said, still speaking in that low, husky voice, as if he had been a ghost suffering from catarrh, was in getting engaged to Phyllis Mills. What? I cried. What? cried Aunt Dahlia. He gad, I said. What on earth did you do that for? said Aunt Dahlia. He shifted uneasily in his chair, like a man troubled with ants in his pants. It seemed a good idea at the time, he said. Bobby told me on the telephone that she never wanted to speak to me again in this world or the next, and Phyllis had been telling me that while she shrank from Wilbert Cream because of his murky past, she found him so magnetic she knew she wouldn't be able to refuse him if he proposed. And I had been commissioned to stop him from proposing, so I thought the simplest thing to do was to get engaged to her myself. So we talked it over, and having reached a thorough understanding that it was simply a ruse and nothing binding on either side, we announced it to Cream. Very shrewd, said Aunt Dahlia. How did he take it? He reeled. A lot of reeling there's been in this business, I said. You reeled if you recollect when you remembered you'd written that letter to Bobby. And I reeled again when she suddenly appeared from nowhere just as I was kissing Phyllis. I pursed the lips. Getting a bit French, this sequence, it seemed to me. There was no need for you to do that. No need, perhaps, but I wanted to make it look natural to Cream. Oh, I see. Driving it home, as it were. That was the idea. Of course, I wouldn't have done it if I'd known that Bobby had changed her mind and wanted things to be as they were before that telephone conversation. I didn't know. It's just 
one of life's little ironies, you get the same sort of thing in Thomas Hardy. I knew nothing of this T. Hardy of whom he spoke, but I saw what he meant. It was like what's always happening in the novels of suspense, where the girl goes round saying, Had I but known! Didn't you explain? He gave me a pitying look. Have you ever tried explaining something to a red-haired girl who's madder than a wet hen? What took his point? What happened then? Oh, she was very ladylike. Talked amiably of this and that till Phyllis had left us. Then she started in. She said she'd raced here with a heart overflowing with love, longing to be in my arms. And a jolly surprise it was to find those arms squeezing the stuffing out of another and a lot more along those lines, I guess. Trouble is, she's always been a bit squiggle-eyed about Phyllis. Because in Switzerland, she held the view that we were a shade too matey. Nothing in it, of course. Just good friends. Exactly. Well, if you want to know what I think, said Aunt Dahlia. But we never did get around to knowing what she thought. For at this moment, Phyllis came in.